Tiger Medical Education Podcast listeners. This is Kevin Eva, the editor-in-chief of the journal, coming to you today with the excitement of introducing another of our annual State of the Science issues. January 2022, you'll have access to an issue that is entitled The Inevitable Triad of Self-Social and Situation. One of the papers submitted to that issue was received from Danny Mendelson, who's a neurosurgeon at Lionsgate Hospital, which happens to be about a six-minute drive from my house. So this is one of the few occasions in which I get to talk to a local for these podcasts. And Danny's also a clinical instructor at the University of British Columbia's Medical School. The paper we'll be discussing is called Determinants of Physician Well-Being and Future Directions in Improving Wellness. Danny, I know you've had a busy clinical day and a lot going on in your life for the last few weeks, months, or years. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to contribute to your journal. You know, it's, a, it's an opportunity well taken because it's a very interesting overview of the issues of well-being and wellness. And I don't have to tell you just how big this literature is getting and how predominant people's concerns are about wellness or burnout or related issues. What was it that got you interested in the domain and pursuing this line of thinking? I think the thing that got me into it was the rigors of my medical training After completing medical school, I entered residency at the University of British Columbia in neurosurgery. The training really was as rigorous as people know it to be. You know, we would routinely stay awake for over 30 hours at a time, typically very frequently work over 100 hours a week, spend, you know, 16, 18 hours a day in an operating room and then cover emergencies at night and then spend the next day in the operating room. And I think it's an important method of getting people to be competent in the end, but it certainly takes a toll on your wellness. And there was a lot of discussion around the time that I was training about what's the best way to promote patient safety. I think that was a lot of the focus at the time during my training. How can we make the training produce competent physicians, but still keep people safe? And then sort of the physician wellness piece or the resident wellness piece was just kind of an afterthought on the side. And I became interested in doing this kind of research because I wanted to kind of identify what type of factors actually do affect people's well-being, how much sleep they get or how much they work or how much they exercise. I think these things, you know, remain incompletely understood and a bit elusive. And I think it's a fascinating field to study because it is really important. Well, and if I tie that back to what I alluded to in mentioning the focus of the issue, the self, the social, and the situation. You just named a couple of individual factors that will have an influence. And you mentioned the workplace and uh, the corporate culture that can have an influence as well. For your particular academic interests, has there been a particular area of focus or priority that you've given to trying to better understand the problems? I mean, the main studies that I completed towards this were really about work hour restrictions about how much sleep people get, how many hours they work, and how much it impacts burnout, job satisfaction. So I think burnout is something that I've put quite a bit of focus on. Is that because of the dominant perspective or things that you've observed in terms of how the situation in which you're working contributes to those problems of burnout? What is it that led you down that particular path? That's an excellent question. And it certainly is something that I've observed that, you know, on the theme of self in this issue, 
that individuals are human beings and they go through different stages in their lives and different work demands or personal events that are taking place impact their well-being and their performance. And you observe people go through challenging circumstances at work and work demands, challenging situations with patients. And you see the impact that the burnout has on their ability to train, to do their role, to provide competent care. And it's been something that I became fascinated in because it's a difficult thing to study. And I felt that it was poorly understood, but an extremely important element of physician training of physician practice that deserves more attention and I'm happy to see has been gaining more attention. So what does the effort that you put into this paper lead you to conclude in terms of where there are opportunities for intervention or how that attention can be turned into something that's actually beneficial? Well, this paper was a really fascinating process for me. I got a chance to take another look at all the literature that's out there and see the state of that particular topic of medicine, physician well-being, burnout. And I'm very pleased to see that sort of the red alert signal has gone out and that people recognize that it's a problem. So that's good. There has been quite a lot of attention on identifying factors that contribute to burnout. And I think that's also important to understand. But my impression of the current state of the literature is that there's kind of a gap that needs to be filled now between the bench and the bedside. We're in need of sort of some translation medicine to take place where we look at what's been done already and actually try to come up with solutions and interventions that will have the types of outcomes we want to achieve in terms of getting physicians to be focusing on their own well-being, to be aware of the issues and to be more well. Because we know that when physicians aren't well and trainees aren't well, that it impacts their own well-being, but not just their own well-being, but patient care. So I think the point I tried to get across in this paper is that traditional scientific approaches like basic science and randomized controlled trials may not necessarily be the best methods for driving real change in this field that's evidence-based. And I tried to put a more of a quality improvement spin on things. This field of quality improvement is relatively new within science. And the concept is that we're going to measure, we're going to try things that should work, and then we're going to measure again And if we get improvements in the outcomes that we're looking for, that's kind of good enough. We don't need an RCTs with p-values. We need things that are going to quickly achieve desired results. And so I think there's a lot that we can gain from fields outside of basic science and clinical research, like corporate wellness and quality improvement methods that we can draw on those types of methods for achieving the desired outcomes we want. And I think that if they could be applied to workplaces, family medicine practices, to undergraduate medicine training programs, to residency training programs, to hospital-based practices, that we can get the types of outcomes that we're looking for. And quality improvement systems like that, we often think about as being driven by the people responsible for the programs, the program directors in the residency case in our context, but the being the hospital administrators, how does an individual engage in quality improvement activities that relate to the burnout and wellness issues that you're describing? 
That's an excellent question. And I think it's one of the gaps that I identified in preparing my review paper. I think within undergraduate medicine, there's the type of infrastructure that you described, the type of human resources of there's a dean, there's, you know, the offices, there's the program directors, there's people who are actually responsible for the trainees. And I think there's a growing consensus that it's not just about training competent people, but we need well-functioning, resilient trainees and physicians who are going to be able to handle challenges and not become burnt out. And so I think in undergraduate medicine, there is more of that infrastructure. And once people get into practice, what I'm seeing is there isn't really a clear consensus on whose responsibility it is. So for instance, in my type of practice, I have a private practice. I have privileges at a hospital. I'm responsible for providing emergency care and elective surgical care. So who exactly is responsible? Is it sort of the head of the department of surgery? Is it the hospital administrators? There's also regulatory bodies, I should say, right? There's the College of Physicians and Surgeons. There's continuing medical education, like in the Royal College. And you know, so we need to get a better understanding, I think, for after medical education, for the continuing medical education part of who are the appropriate bodies to be you know, assisting to address this problem, because you're absolutely right that individuals can't do it on their own. And I think we certainly need better infrastructure for that and resources so that people can participate in quality improvement projects. And it might be something like just having a role, you know, have Physicians who are like the head of internal medicine or the assistant director of anesthesia. Well, perhaps there should be, you know, wellness liaisons that are, you know, defined roles within these departments who can, you know, implement evidence-based quality improvement initiatives that have been shown to work in those types of practice environments and get real solutions to the types of problems that we all know are very prevalent and not really improving with the status quo. So thinking about those individuals then, if departments were to take your advice and empower somebody to take the lead on those things, you mentioned in the paper the importance of transformational change, moving to a culture that is a culture of wellness. Where would you encourage that person to start in terms of how to begin such a big task? Okay, so that's an excellent question. And I think we can use the analogy of the transformational change that I think has been ongoing in the field of patient safety, where it's been recognized that medical errors are a huge contributor to morbidity and mortality. And, you know, there was that seminal paper in 1999, the Institute of Medicine to Air is Human. And since then, when you're a frontline person and you're on the ground, you see it that people are much more open about discussing concerns about safety, that it's not just this hierarchical military style system where people can't phrase concerns. And I myself practice that and my colleagues practice that, that if somebody's concerned about something taking place that's not safe, that needs to be clear and people need to have open discussions about it. So I've been able in you know my limited time in this career to witness patient safety transform and become to the forefront. And I think the exact same process needs to take place with wellness. We've identified a problem with wellness. It has a real impact and we're not doing a great job of it right now. And just to use kind of my practice environment as an example, we're dealing with a crisis of a nursing burnout and it's palpable. It's not just because of the pandemic, although that's certainly contributed, where people are you know, at the end of their rope, you see it in their faces and the morale is very poor. 
and we're dealing with shortages as a result of it. And there's really very little in place at the present time to focus on nursing wellness. It seems like everything is focused around, let's get as many patients in as we can. We need to do as many operations as we can. And you have to stay late again, even though it doesn't work with your daycare or your childcare. And wellness is just not being promoted. And one thing that I'm trying to implement right now is to prove the morale and I think one of the first things I'm going to propose is that as surgeons, we all get together to say, we're part of the work environment. We need liaisons, people whose roles are to listen to the concerns that our colleagues have, find out what kind of things are contributing to their burnout, what kind of things are affecting their wellness, figure out what we can do to improve that. And I think a lot of it is, you know, for having people feel heard having people feel that their wellness is a priority to the employer, to the colleagues that they work with. And that's the kind of transformational change that is going to need to take place to address this problem. And I don't think has actually happened yet. And one of the things I tried to get across in my article is that this is really not new. Like, you know, people love working for Google. They love working for these companies that have figured it out. What makes it awesome to work in an environment? And it's about feeling appreciated. It's about the environment reducing the types of stresses and administrative burdens that are just frankly unnecessary and avoidable, which impact people's daily morale and overall well-being. And as distressing as those things are, the note about how culture has changed about patient safety is certainly an optimistic note. And I think as a result, that's the one I want to wrap up on because you've offered some clear guidance on how we can start to shift things in that direction to hopefully experience a palpable movement in people's willingness and ability to bring these issues to light when they're being felt. And I hope that our listeners have heard your advice and would direct them to your article for the additional details because it is such important work. And I'm, as a result, very grateful that you're taking it on. Well, yeah, no, thank you. And I mean, the last comment I'll say is that part of what's so challenging about this field is that we're dealing with something that's hard to define. It's intangible. It's easy for it to be ignored. It's, you know, for years we had a patient safety issue and outcomes weren't measured. And now there's all these quality improvement initiatives where we're trying to reduce infection rates and do all these things. And we've got great metrics and the metrics just are not where they need to be for us to really implement quality improvement programs. But the solutions are out there. We can draw from what we've done with patient safety to achieve transformational change and cultural shifts in the importance of well-being at work. And we can draw on strategies that have been used in the corporate world and apply quality improvement methods that are probably more suitable for addressing this type of problem rather than sort of sticking to the inside the box framework of basic science and randomized trials. It was a challenging article for me to write for the reasons I mentioned that it's a bit of an intangible outcome and it's hard to define wellness and it's hard to really come up with interventions. But I learned a lot about what other fields have done and what other knowledge and wisdom we can take from in order to apply to this important problem. Definitely. And you can 
tell it's a hard article to write because it does bring together so many diverse ideas. And so it needed somebody to take it on and you did that well. And so for those who want to see the end result, as I mentioned at the top, you'll find it in the January 2022 issue of Medical Education with the title Determinants of Physician Wellbeing and Future Directions in Improving Wellness and the author being Daniel Mendelssohn. Thanks again, Danny. Thank you very much for having me. Have a great day. 